I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we're grateful for the opportunity to welcome Rakil Bhavani to the podcast for the first time. Rakil is a professor with the Department of Political Science here at UW-Madison, where he also serves as Director of Graduate Studies. He is also faculty affiliate at the La Follette School of Public Affairs, the Elections Research Center, and the Center for South Asia. Professor Bhavani's research focuses primarily on the political economy of development and migration, and on inequalities in political representation, mainly in South Asia. We will ask the professor about his teaching and research interests here at UW-Madison. Additionally, in almost four years of our podcast, we've neglected to have a conversation focused primarily on India, a global powerhouse in the world order with a rich and fascinating political history. We hope to rectify that today in talking with the professor, whose research and teaching engage Indian economic development and politics. We learned a lot today, and we hope you will too. Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks so much for being here and letting this be your first podcasting experience with us. Uh, thanks so much for, for having me here. Um, it's a great pleasure. So since this is the first time we've had you on the podcast, I would love to just start and talk a little bit about you and your background, how you've gotten here on your journey in education. So what set you on the pathway toward becoming a professor and studying this area of work that you specialize in? We know you did your BA at Yale in economics and politics. And did you know in undergrad that you wanted to progress into a career as a professor, or was that a later um, revelation? Right. So I'm a comparativist. I study democracy and development in India. Um, I study that because, well, I grew up in India and I've always you know, been keenly aware of and frankly distressed by poverty and inequality, as a lot of people are. So I study development because it allows me to study how and why countries got to be where they are in material terms. I studied democracy because India was until recently and still is in some ways a vibrant and deeply unlikely democracy uh, that I'm immensely proud of because I grew up there. As a system of government, democracy can recognize people's equal moral worth in a way and thereby dignifies people even as poverty robs them of their dignity. Um, and so I study democracy because it can be a wonderful thing, uh, particularly in, in, in developing countries. So that you know, sort of explains why I study democracy and development. I certainly did not know that this is what I wanted to do. Uh, I went to Yale to study uh, chemical engineering, to join my family business, my parents' business. I wasn't very good at it, my heart wasn't in it, and so I quickly switched away to, to econ and poli-sci. Um, upon graduating, I wanted to be a policymaker, to make a difference in the real world, as I, as I put it. Uh, so I joined the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, uh, which is an international organization that sort of helps um, ensure macroeconomic stability around the world. And I loved it. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was a fantastic two-year experience. Uh, I worked on, on Ethiopia. I went back and forth. 
and I learned a lot. But I was uncomfortable about the power dynamic between us, uh, you know, people from, from, from the developed world, on the one hand, and, and, and policymakers in developing countries on the other. So that made me uncomfortable. Uh, and I was also struck by the fact that I felt that as a policymaker, you know, for that short period of time, I feel like we were grouping around in the dark oftentimes. And in some senses, I feel like academia has failed policymakers has failed to equip them with the with relevant research with which to make sensible decisions. And so, you know, that in some sense is sort of rationalized was why I found my way to academia, rationalized my retreat to academia. So I still view myself as possibly making a difference in the in the real world. And you know, and that, so that's what got me here. And now what keeps me here is I just love it. You know, I love sort of learning more about the world and deepening our understanding of interesting research questions whether they have policy implications or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's, yeah. And we know that you've had kind of an interesting academic journey because mm-hmm. after your undergraduate time at Yale, you went to the London School of Economics mm-hmm. and then got your master's in economics in Stanford before getting a doctorate in political science. What was it like studying at all of those different institutions and why did you choose to combine both economics and political science rather than just choosing one or the other? It's a good question. So, so I think... There are lots of disciplines that one can use to study the questions that I'm interested in, democracy and development. And I think just political economy as an approach to the world, to understanding the world, really resonates with me. And I feel like its explanations are particularly powerful. And so I think that's why, you know, that's why um, I chose those disciplines in particular. In terms of, you know, why... Another way of sort of thinking about this is, you know, why did I choose uh, choose to study India? I deliberately actually didn't intend to. You know, I went to, when I went to Yale, I sort of said I, you know, have some understanding of, of India. I'm from India. So I really want to grow as a person and get to know a different part of the world. And so I worked on, on um, Ghana uh, for a while. I did my undergrad thesis on Ghana. I worked with uh, a professor at Yale, um, Chris Udry, who was in the econ department, who worked on Ghana. So I really got to know the the region a bit, and then continued to do that when I was doing my master's at the LSC. In between, I worked on Ethiopia. So I went to Stanford saying, I really want to become an expert on sub-Saharan Africa. I want to become an Africanist. But then the ideas that kept on occurring to me for, were from India, you know, which is, which is the, the region that I knew, knew best. And so that saw me return to, to, that, to that context. Yeah, very interesting background. We also wanted to talk to you a little bit about your teaching interests here. You teach a course called The Political Economy of Development, which obviously you know about, but for our uh, for our listeners, the course addresses a broad but central question in comparative politics. Why are some countries rich and others poor? And what does economic development look like in different countries around the world? So do you want to briefly share with us how you explore those different themes in your class? Like, say we're your students on your first day of class? How do you present those questions to us? Great question. So, so, so I love teaching this class. Um, it, you know, it's a fun, uh, it's, it's a class that's open to sophomores and above. Um, so you know, people require, have some sort of background before they, before they start the class. But the class focuses on trying to understand why some countries are rich, while other countries are poor. And so I start the class by, by sort of just explaining the nature of the problem as I see it, right? answering, you know, what is the class going to be about and what are we going to be not focusing on? And so I emphasize that, you know, the class is about the process of development, trying to explain average levels of uh, development or, 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 or income across across countries. But this does not mean that we only focus on developing or so-called poor countries. 
we also focus on rich countries uh, because we're trying to understand how rich countries became rich. So this is a class as much about Europe and the United States as it is about Latin America or, or Southeast Asia or India or China. So that's what the class is, you know, class is about. It's trying to understand average levels of income across across the world. Uh, and the class proceeds in four parts. You know, we start by by examining leading theories of economic development. And these, you know, these are theories from economics, from anthropology, from sociology. And so, so we so we sort of understand try to understand leading theories of economic development uh, in part one. In part two, then we we consider the development experiences of different parts of the world, um, you know, including sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, India, China, and so forth. And then we switch to examine select issues in development, including the effects of ethnic diversity, corruption, uh, natural resources, women's empowerment, and, and so forth. Um, and then we conclude on a hopeful note, uh, wherein we try to understand the interactions between countries, right, via trade, foreign aid, migration, and war. Uh, and we try to understand the effects of these interactions um, uh, on economic development, in, assess- in essence asking what we in the West can do to further development in the global South. And so that's how the class class unfolds. It's a you know it's a, a, a class that has you know about hundred people. I try to make it interactive as much as possible. So you know pause for lots of questions. This is my bread and butter. It's my favorite class to teach. I teach both an undergrad and a grad version. On that fourth section of your class, where you're looking at the interactions between countries, what does that end up looking like, especially like between countries with economic disparities um, between them? Do you have any examples like of how Western countries could help countries that are developing economically, just like off the top of your head? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so there are two sort of a couple of major ways, for example, in which uh, the United States interacts with, with developing countries that helps and, and hinders them at, at, at various points. Right. So, so, you know, one of the biggest things that we've done. Uh, over the last several decades is, uh, you know, lowered our trade barriers, uh, particularly to developing countries, lowered some of our trade barriers, particularly, especially for developing countries and not to other countries. And so there's there was something called the Af- the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, passed, I believe, by the, Gro- by the Bush administration, uh, that really facilitated trade between sub-Saharan African countries and, and the United States. This led to a massive export boom from, from a number of um, uh, African countries, which has led to poverty reduction. And so that's that's one thing that we've done. You know, another thing that we do uh, is, of course, we provide foreign aid to developing countries. Now, some of this foreign aid, of course, gets wasted. Some of it is used for emergency support, not to facilitate economic growth or development, but to, uh, uh, you know, uh, fund a vaccination campaign or to uh, uh, to provide relief during a crisis. Uh, but some of it does get used to promote economic growth and improves uh, levels of economic development. Uh, yet another thing we do um, is uh, we have relatively open borders. And so we have uh, migration from the developing world to the United States. Uh, and this, uh, you know, of course, helps those individuals that are that are moving. But these individuals also send private money back in the form of remittances. And those remittances can improve outcomes in the developing world as well. And so those are a few ways in which, you know, uh, our interactions are positive. You know, on the negative side, we oftentimes prosecute wars in, in, in other parts of the world, uh, which can damage their economies naturally. So that can be problematic. Not to put you on the spot, but I was really intrigued when you were talking in your um, section about your background, about how you were a little uncomfortable working after a while at the IMF, um, just because of the power dynamic between such a large organization and then 
maybe developing countries or poorer nations that are receiving aid. Mm. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about that? And is there a way to do um, international economic work without it having that oppressive power dynamic? Right. Okay, so, so, so let me unpack that a little bit, right? So, so what was uncomfortable about it is, you know, so, so we were, when I was working on, um, you know, on Ethiopia, we were going in with a large foreign aid package um, uh, that the country needed. Um, and so, so we were trying to convince them that particular economic reforms would be needed for them uh, to prosper. Our counter- counterparts, right, were, of course, from their country, they, they represented their country, but they were not democratically elected. So I felt a little bit like a fraud because I was an outsider asking people to do things and, you know, right, right, you know helping, um, uh, uh, you know, channel money to a particular, to a particular country. Uh, but it's not like our counterparts were necessarily particularly legitimate either. The prime minister at the time was Mela Zanawi, who was uh, essentially a dictator. And, uh, but still they were off the place. They were Ethiopian and we were not. And so, so I think that was the sort of the root of my discomfort. Your second question was, is there a way to do this without, you know, without that power dynamic? And I'm not sure that there is. You know, there is, there is one approach is, of course, to say, well, I can make a difference on the ground by going to a village and being a volunteer and doing something. But that's at the micro scale. It's not clear that that is really solving the development problem that's helping a particular village at a particular point in time. And that's useful and, and, and wonderful. But I'm not sure that that really solves a development problem. And so if you want to work at scale, I think you do need to engage with these uncomfortable uh, interactions. And I don't think there's much, you know, there's, there's a way around it. Uh, there are ways to make things better, those interactions more positive, perhaps. You know, one of the things that I think helped with Ethiopia is that particular country's policymakers, they were not pushovers. They were really proud representatives of their country. And that made it easier to negotiate, uh, to sort of undertake negotiations, negotiations with them. But, uh, but it was still uncomfortable. I should emphasize that I was, you know, a small cog in a very large, large wheel. So, so I was certainly not, you know, making any decision that affected things uh, hugely, but I was contributing to the discussions. Speaking of all of these questions and how to treat interactions between countries, I think globalization is something we're increasingly talking about. And we know that it's had very mixed results in creating economic development in countries around the world, despite some earlier expectations, maybe that open trade or permeable economic borders would help reduce economic inequality. So what have scholars learned about several decades of globalization now, especially in the countries of South Asia that you focus on? Right. Okay, so I think this, this is a great question. It's an important question. Um, the research and development generally suggests that globalization has been a thumping, spectacular success, right? Uh, by one count, over the last two to four decades, 700 million people have been lifted out of poverty in China. 400 million people have been lifted out of poverty in India. So these are massive reductions in inequality and massive improvements in development that are partly, not entirely, uh, driven by globalization. In particular, the globalization of trade, the movement of goods and services across across boundaries. So we and we learn this, you know, from research, uh, you know, uh, around the world. But research in South Asia has really contributed to our understanding of globalization and to the effects of of trade. There was, in fact, you know, a really really interesting and really vibrant re- research agenda in the nineteen seventies 
that was studying barriers to trade across the developing world in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. They basically found that attempts to industrialize using import tariffs led to corruption. And so, so that research, you know, was showing essentially barriers to trade, barriers to globalization uh, could be problematic and led to negative, uh, negative outcomes. And then more recently, we've learned, of course, that trade uh, has really helped reduce poverty massively in China and India. The most uh, successful country in South Asia at the moment is Bangladesh, which is an export powerhouse and has reduced poverty, has the highest per capita income in, in the region and has reduced poverty largely through textile exports. Now, it's worth noting that people tend to forget about this. This is the macro picture. Trade works. It reduces inequality if, you look, if, you, if you're looking at the global context. And people forget about this because in the OECD, in rich worlds, in Europe, in the United States in particular, trade recently, recent trade, recent increases in trade have been associated with increases in, in, in inequality. And so this is the overall pattern. A massive reduction in global inequality if you treat individuals as individuals are around the, uh, the same across the world. If you line them up and you look at inequality across individuals, inequality has reduced because of trade. But you look within the United States, you see that there has been a large increase in inequality, partly attributed to trade. Now I say partly because a different way of looking at this is to say that the increase in inequality in places like the United States is not just because of trade, but it's because of trade plus a lack of a political willingness or ability to recompense the losers from increases in trade and globalization. And so, so um, yeah, so the overall story is globalization, I'd say, works, but it has some negative political consequences, political economic consequences in places like the United States that can be addressed through policy. So what does, who are those losers in, say, the United States when we're looking just within a nation? Who would be the losers with an increase of trade? And do you have any examples of types of policies in particular that would help maybe balance that out on a nation scale? Right. So I'm not you know, certainly not an, an expert on, on the United States or, or the OECD more generally. But, you know, the standard, you know, the standard trade, trade theory would tell us that basically the winners from trade, um, you know, in the United States are going to be the relatively skilled people and the relatively unskilled people are going to lose from trade. Uh, because uh, because because goods are going to come in that basically goods from places like South Asia and China that use cheaper labor are going to come in and replace what relatively unskilled labor do over here. Now, what is what is the what is the standard way to to deal with this is to redeploy those workers in other sectors. Now, redeploying workers, of course, takes time. You need to reskill workers, uh, and it's not clear how effective that process. Has been. There isn't enough research, enough research on this. I don't. I don't think. But there is a general sense that that these uh, these retraining programs have generally failed. There haven't been enough of them, and they're not particularly effective. Uh, so an alternative is, of course, uh, welfare payments, which, as we know, the United States is less keen on. This is a tough question. So if you don't have an immediate answer, that's okay. But do you have a projection for what globalization would look like in the next? few decades going forward like I'm assuming we're not going to see a it's not a linear growth in terms of benefits to people in poorer nations or even to people in developed countries like the U.S. is there kind of a trajectory that people have predicted economically? 
I don't know about the medium term. It's that's that's tough. But in the short term, there are you know concerns that basically uh, various countries have been retreating from globalization, uh, uh, including the United States, closing itself off partly because of the domestic increases in in inequality that 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 we just discussed. And that is a concern because not only, you know, are countries like the United States and Europe sort of beginning to close themselves off from trade, but also because developing countries are closing themselves off from trade. You know, uh, people, uh, countries are sort of less likely to engage with regional trade agreements or global trade agreements. And this is, uh, this is problematic for the future of poverty reduction. So that's sort of what's happening in the short run. Things tend to snowball. So I fear that that's going to be the case for a while. Uh, there is going to be a, a reduction in trade. And you see this not just with trade, but you also see this with foreign direct investment, right? Globalization works. Globalization is the process of sort of by which, you know, countries become increasingly integrated. And so all sorts of factors of production, what we call factors of production, uh, uh, increasingly move across boundaries. So we're not just talking about the movement of goods and services, but also money and people. And all of these things are, are there. There are increasing barriers to to a number of these things. This has not just been driven by you know increases in inequality, uh, domestic increases in inequality in, in in rich countries, but also by increasingly strained relationship with uh, with China. And so, as we know, uh, China, as a beneficiary of globalization, has had a lot of foreign direct investment, has experienced a lot of investment, there's a lot of our sort of our goods and services come from China, and there is a feeling that we need to reduce our dependence on China. And so people are looking to reshore a lot of services and bring that home back to the United States. Not all of it will be brought back to the United States, some of it will continue to be in China, some of it will go to other countries. So we will continue to benefit from globalization in that regard, uh, but some of it will come back and that uh, will lead to a reduction in global welfare. While we're still on the topic of um, a more global outlook, what are scholars learning about how the pandemic has impacted global economic inequality? And how do you see that ongoing impact play out in the short term and more long term, if you have any insight? So I think it's still, this is an ongoing event the pandemic. And so it's a little, you know, we don't have all the data. Um, you know, the broad pattern in, 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 uh, in development, as I, as I suggested, over the last several decades has been of convergence, right? India and China, which, uh, you know, lagged OECD countries substantially in terms of their levels of GDP per capita, which is sort of a common way in which we measure development. The, these countries have massively converged with OECD countries. And so what's happened during the pandemic is that pace of convergence has clearly slowed. And some people would argue it's actually uh, been reversed. And so, and so that's sort of the broad, one, one broad pattern that we have, we have observed, uh, that we have enough data to, to say. The other, so that's on the one hand, right? So slowing convergence. On the other hand, we have actually the opposite pattern, right? So you can look at development, you can measure development looking at another outcome, not GDP per capita, not average income, basically, that a country earns, but looking at a mortality and health. Uh, and what we see with that is, is that rich countries have actually done really badly. Mortality due to COVID in rich countries has been far greater than mortality in developing countries. We don't have great data on this because data on COVID mortality across the world is, is, isn't that great. But, but all the data we do have does suggest that developed countries have done worse during COVID. And that suggests convergence rather than divergence between the countries. So two, two, two different trends if you look at uh, two different outcomes. 
So that's, that's sort of one, one set of answers to this. The last thing I'll say on this perhaps is that, of course, more generally, you know, I think the way people have experienced the pandemic is, you know, living in their countries. And so one thing that has been brought home very clearly during the pandemic is that there are tremendous inequalities in access to healthcare based on gender, race, ethnicity within countries. And so I think COVID sort of underlined these domestic inequalities. As we noted, we haven't really talked much about India on the podcast yet. Um, we want to bounce off of one of your publications with Saloni Bogale called India in 2021, India at a Crossroads. And as a start for listeners who might not be as familiar with politics in India, would you maybe give us a brief overview of the political system in general, the current ruling party, tell us a little bit about the prime minister, um, Rendra Modi, who has a reputation as kind of a right-wing populist internationally, but seems relatively popular in India right now? Great. Um, sure. So until recently, India was a thriving democracy with free and fair regularly held elections uh, with periodic alternations of the party in power. And so voters successfully held the government to account in some senses, at least during elections. Uh, this vertical accountability was accompanied by horizontal accountability, wherein institutions like the press, the Supreme Court, the Election Commission uh, and India's states, this is a, a federal com- country, checked the government, perhaps not as frequently as one might like, but very, very substantially. You know, in terms of nuts and bolts, India has a parliamentary system of government on the British or Westminster model, with an upper and lower house um, and an indirectly elected prime minister who leads the government. In 2014, uh, the current government basically came to power, led by the prime minister Narendra Modi, who is a strong man uh, from the Hindu nationalist right-wing Bharatiya Janata Party. This was a break uh, from the past because India's politics until that point had been dominated by the Congress party, uh, the center-left party that inherited the Indian independence movement in, in some ways. So Modi is, is, uh, won, won a second term uh, with, a, with an improved parliamentary tally, uh, with an improved strengthened mandate in 2019. He remains generally, genuinely popular uh, despite the pandemic and the country's growth slowdown. He's vanquished the Congress, basically, and he has weakened other opposition parties, other regional parties. And so he is likely to be in power and his party is likely to be in power for some time longer. And I just got a New York Times headline in my inbox when I woke up this morning saying that Modi had sentenced to jail the one opposition leader kind of left standing, Rahul Gandhi. So that seems to be progressing just fine for him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a good example of, you know, how, how what has happened, you know, these institutions of what we call horizontal accountability in political science, how they've really given way, right? So this is, and this is a pattern across the developing world, including in India, when you have a strong, a, a government that it has a stronger majority in parliament, essentially, uh, the institutions that are supposed to hold parliament to check and hold the government to hold the executive to check wither. Uh, and are less likely to do so. So here you have an example of the courts of India, uh, which are, of course, independent, uh, choosing to side with uh, the government uh, rather than the opposition. And uh, the courts have failed, essentially, to uphold freedom of speech in this context, uh, in this case, and uh, uh, the leader, the ability of a prominent leader of the opposition to, uh, to check the government. That might actually lead into our next question. Um, we wanted to ask about how... India was downgraded from a mostly free democracy to an electoral autocracy. And we were wondering what your take is on what the state of democracy is in India today, 
and maybe why it was downgraded. So definitions may vary, but there's a substantial scholarly consensus that India's democracy is far weaker and less liberal than it was, say, 10 years ago. So that I think we know. Now, whether this makes India an electoral autocracy, an autocracy, an illiberal democracy, or a democracy proper, or something else entirely, is is partially a technical debate that scholars will have, because their standards will, will vary. But descriptively, we may say that India's democracy is weaker. So I would, I would concur with that, with that statement. And the question is why, uh, right? So, so descriptively, as I suggested, India continues to have relatively free and fair elections, although the body uh, responsible for conducting these elections, the Election Commission of India, uh, has been weakened. Now, despite this, so, so, so elections continue to be held well, but other things aren't going so well. And so the courts have given way, the media is being muzzled, human rights bodies uh, have been found wanting for long before before the BJP came to power. And so these other institutions that were supposed to check the the government, in particular the opposition, uh, aren't aren't doing their job, aren't able to to do their job. So those are sort of the, you know, that's sort of a, a thicker description of what, uh, you know, why, why India is a weaker democracy. Now, what is the cause of this, this weakening? Um, you know, sort of a deeper cause is, of course, the election of, uh, of Narendra Modi uh, a, uh, the, from the BJP. And he's just an incredible, Narendra Modi is an incredible uh, uh, politician. Uh, he has uh, decimated the, uh, the opposition and he fights every election like it's his last and the opposition is, is just considerably weaker. It suffers from weaker leadership, it is divided, and the BJP is very good at playing up these divisions. And so their hold on power is, is being cemented, and they are India's current dominant, dominant party. And the press is being muzzled uh, in, you know, in several, several ways. One, through certainly not through, through uh, you know, outright censorship, but through informal pressure that is brought to bear on, uh, on members of the press. You've also had uh, big business that is aligned with the government in power, with the party in power, buying up uh, newspapers and television channels. And so, so this has led to an increasing sort of towing of the party line. And so you, you get fewer exposés, you get fewer stories that are critical of the government. You know, a sort of a, a silver lining in this landscape is that you do have some inde- inde- you know, more independent media houses on or media sites, websites uh, on the, you know on the internet that have channels on YouTube and things like that, but their circulation, their viewership is low, and they too are threatened with court cases and are being muzzled by the government. And so there is uh, an independent you know media, a thriving media, a cantankerous media that does try to hold the government to account, but they are being stymied. Besides discussing how the press and other institutions within India relate to each other. We'd also like to ask some questions about India's relations with other countries. So notably, we know India has not criticized Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Why do you think that's the case and kind of what are the strategic reasons for not condemning the invasion? So one thing I'd just sort of start by noting that India, while India hasn't condemned Russia in public, the prime minister has called for an immediate cessation of violence. And we are told in private that he has tried to lean on Russia to to bring uh, hostilities to a rapid end. It's worth noting that India isn't alone in this stance. There was a recent UN resolution condemning Russia that passed 143 countries condemned Russia. 
calls for uh, you know called uh, publicly for an immediate cessation in violence, but a quarter of the countries in the world, over 40 countries, did not. They abstained, and India was was one of them. Uh, the most immediate reason is a strategic one. Russia is an important supplier of military hardware to the country. Most of its hardware actually comes from Russia, and so although India is working to lessen its dependence on Russia hard, Russian hardware and spare parts, that will take time. The second thing is, of course, a small thing is that India has benefited from cheaper Russian oil uh, that it has it has bought as uh, as Europe weans its itself off oil. So a second reason is uh, is perhaps Russia's more consistent track record uh, than the United States in helping. Uh, so Russia was a consistent friend to India during the Cold War. Uh, the United States was not, and so there is this history, uh, and it counts counts for something. So there is this reluctance. India is pivoting towards the United States very much, but there is uh, there is a long memory. And the last thing I'd note is that India does have this long-standing policy of non-alignment, what it now dubs strategic autonomy, wherein India has always sought to pursue its own interests uh, without being too closely associated with any superpower or any country. Uh, and so, and this is this has allowed India to hit above its weight on the global stage, particularly in the 1950s and 60s. This was an incredibly poor country, uh, and it was listened to partly because of uh, the remarkable leadership of uh, the first Prime Minister, Nehru, who crafted this policy of non-alignment that I think has served India decently over time. While we're on the topic of India's interesting relationships with Russia and just with other countries around the world, we wanted to look at India and China's relationship together and their complicated relationship. Can you talk a little bit about why that's been the case and where they stand today? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really important relationship, right? Between the two of them, they both have about 1.4 billion people, right? So between the two of them, they have a third of the world's population. And it's a fraught relationship. It's an, and it's an uneven and unequal relationship today. China's GDP per capita is two and a half times that of India. So China is substantially richer and more powerful, even as, you know, in 1960, the countries were about evenly, evenly uh, situated. The country fought, um, you know, in the post-independence period in 1962, fought and lost a, a humiliating war uh, with China. And uh, it has a long unsettled border, border that has not been fully demarcated. The countries have a, a share of border of 2,100 miles approximately. And so there are periodically, there was this war in 1962 over this disputed border. And there have been subsequently, there have been skirmishes in the 1960s, in the 1980s rather, uh, in 2008, 2013, 2014, uh, and 2017. Most recently in 2020, during the pandemic, uh, there was uh, an outbreak of, um, well, there was a border skirmish, as they put it, and uh, China uh, walked into Indian territory and has occupied a, a good chunk of Indian territory in, in the north. So the uneven, you know, economic and military might of these countries means that there's, of course, there's little that China can, that India can do about any of this. Uh, that said, as relations between the United States and China worsen, the United States has sought to counter China by allying with India. India is, because it likes to be non-aligned, not the United States ally, uh, but it is certainly cozying up over time to the United States. Uh, and so I expect that will that will continue. And where would you say India fits comparatively in kind of the global order right now in the context of China and the United States and Russia, all of whom seem to be seeking to claim some sort of dominant position in one sector or another? Why do you think we don't hear about India comparatively as much as China and Russia in the U.S.? 
So you hear about countries, I think, you know, we generally hear about countries if they, you know, as they affect our lives. And China is just uh, a more powerful country. So we hear about and engage with China a lot more. We hear about Russia, even though it's a much less powerful country, uh, because it's uh, impeding our interests in Europe. Um, uh, and so I think we less hear less about India because India's matters less to the average American. And uh, so, so part of that is, uh, you know, part of that is, is natural. How do I see these countries? I'm not an IR expert, but, you know, Russia is, of course, trying to retain its influence in its neighborhood, whilst China is trying to move beyond exerting influence in its neighborhood to exerting influence on a broader stage. Uh, And so the competition, as it were, is possibly occurring between the United States and China. And as this unfolds, India is an important player because the United States will and is trying to counter China by strengthening India. Yeah, so, so, so this is going to, you know, play out over time. And I expect that, you know, this, I don't expect there to be any sort of dramatic change because it takes a while for these things to unfold. Uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so I think, you know, I think the future is, is going to be, uh, is going to see India pivoting slowly towards towards um, the United States, particularly if China continues to be hostile. That said, I should note, China is a really important, you know, you know more bro- broadly, China is um, India's largest uh, market uh, for exports. So India exports over 100, I think $120 billion uh, to China annually, uh, and so is a major market. And so India doesn't want to rock the boat too much either. That's another reason. You know, it can't do much. It's militarily weaker. And it is economically uh, really uh, linked to China. As we're starting to wrap up our conversation here, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you think would be important to touch on before we wrap up? One thing, you know, that might be of interest to listeners is I'd like to make maybe a little pitch on why I think social scientists should study India. Uh, you know, beyond the obvious obvious reasons, you know, it's a fascinating country. It has a rich history. It's incredibly diverse. Interesting. It's uh, you know, for a social scientist, it's relatively accessible. You know, people policymakers generally you know speak English. It's uh, relatively globalized uh, now. You know, Americanized in some ways. It's a country of one point you know one point four billion people. You know, it has twenty eight states. You know, lots of legislatures, lots of courts, lots of um, executives, lots of um, different institutions, uh, vibrant private sector. Uh, it's a variation to study, which is which is interesting. Um, I, I'm working on a project now with uh, a, another graduate student, uh, Priyadarshi Amar and Amit Yadav, who, who who's a graduate student in another department, and we're studying the 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 uh, you know differences in uh, whether whether it makes a difference whether uh, village level governments have a presidential or a parliamentary form of government and whether they have direct or indirect elections for the chief executive. There are very few countries in the world where you could study that, that question. So lots of interesting institutional variation to study. And there are lots of puzzles to study, right? So a, the, a major puzzle, you know, that drew me to the case is, you know, trying to understand why India, how India is, is, is democratic or has been relatively democratic for long. There are other questions, you know, why is it, you know, why is it that it is, uh, you know, as compared to China, relatively poor, even though uh, they were they were around the same, had the same levels of, of development in 1960. So why is it, hasn't it done as well as China, but why has it done much better than some countries in sub-Saharan Africa at the same time? Uh, why is it relatively, uh, why is there lots of civil violence? Why are there riots periodically? Uh, so these are sort of interesting questions that you can study in the Indian context, uh, that uh, that I think uh, more people should be should be uh, studying. 
That's a good plug. That yeah, sounds good like a really interesting <laughs> project that you're working on as well. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. So we'd like to end off on a bit of a fun question, as we like to on this podcast. What's one of your favorite places on campus or around campus to grab coffee or a quick bite to eat? We're always looking for recommendations. Sure. Um, so two, two recommendations. One, I sometimes, well, we get coffee in the education building and then go up to the third or fourth floor. There's a fantastic deck overlooking Lake Mendota. That's just a wonderful place to, 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 to read for a bit. Uh, particularly in the spring, spring, summer, and fall. The place that I like to go to for lunch uh, is Estacia Inca. Near, it's nearby. It's on um, University, I believe. It's a Peruvian restaurant, uh, and it's just it's fantastic. It has excellent, simple fare um, with a little bit of spice if you, if you need it. Good recommendation. Yes. I think the Ed building is slept on as a very good yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, people don't know. And I, don't, I try not to publicize it too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, because then don't want people quiet exactly. up there. Yeah. yeah. Everybody else can keep going to Memu. We'll have the Ed building. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's true. Well, thank you again so much for talking to us on the podcast. And we'd love to have you back sometime, maybe to talk about that project that's ongoing right now. Wonderful. Thank you so much. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.